Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, Rachel Forsyth here with just a quick message about the podcast you're about to hear. This week's amazing guest is the chair of Natural England, Tony Juniper, and I caught up with him in Cambridge. It was a beautiful day, so we decided to record the podcast outside, but you might hear the odd bird tweeting, aeroplane flying overhead and wind blowing into the microphone. Tony covers a lot of interesting ground in this podcast, including why he thinks biodiversity needs to be talked about much, much more in the climate change debate and its solutions. He notes that problems could be coming from the word biodiversity, with some people confusing it for a washing powder. For Tony, a different term needs to be used to help the public understand the issues more clearly. He also argues that working with nature is key, not just because of the environmental issues we're facing, but also in solving issues around mental and physical health. So here it is. Hope you enjoy. Welcome to the Horticulture Week podcast. I'm Rachel Forsyth, Senior Reporter at Hort Week. And on this week's podcast, I am joined by Tony Juniper, Chair of Natural England. For those of you who don't know, Natural England is the government's advisor for the natural environment in England. And Tony, you've been working at Natural England since 2019. I joined in 2019, Rachel, and uh, I'm now um, in the early stages of a second term as chair. Uh, so expect to be there for a few years yet. Do you have any plans as, as kind of where you want to take that role over the next few years? Well, the big idea that we have at Natural England, which is very much government policy, is for the recovery of the natural environment. And I think if you look at the history of the work that we've been doing, and many people over more than 100 years now, 70 years in the official uh, dimensions of all of this, We've been focusing on the idea of conservation, which is really about hanging on to the best bits that are left and looking after endangered species and rare habitats, which has been essential and it remains so. But now the idea of nature recovery is very much coming to the fore for all the reasons we know uh, that we can benefit from healthy natural systems. And so trying to restore the natural environment uh, is now very much front and centre. And the idea of a nature recovery network is about the biggest idea that we're working with at Natural England to try and restore and reconnect habitats right across the country. Oh, making those green corridors. 
Exactly. Green corridors, interconnectivity, enabling adaptation to climate change, uh, not only for the wildlife but also for people, because healthy natural habitats help to reduce flood risk, they can reduce heat island effects, and the more we invest in the health of nature, the more benefits we'll get across a whole range uh, of different headings, clean water, public health and well-being and also of course carbon capture. Mm. It's said so often in our industry if you work for nature you work for people you know the benefits that come hand in hand really don't they? Exactly and I think this is one of the most important shifts in the discussion over the last 10 years has been a move away from this idea that in order to grow the economy and improve conditions for people that we have to sacrifice the environment and of course nothing could be further from the truth because the reality is and we have loads of information and data now on this the more we protect and restore nature the more benefits we bring into the human world mm, absolutely and i recently listened to you talk about um you did a talk at green controls green games live bit of a mouthful there uh you opened by saying that biodiversity its profile isn't as big in maybe the climate change discussion and potentially one of the issues is the word biodiversity. I wondered if you could kind of expand on what you meant by that. Yes, I, th I think it's fair to say, isn't it, o over recent times that there's been a very high profile of carbon and climate in the environmental discussion and of course for very good reason uh, but the other global emergency is the loss of biodiversity and yet it really hasn't achieved the same prominence in, in the policy discussion or in popular debate uh, but that is beginning to change and uh, you know I, I think part of it is about getting beyond that word biodiversity because it is quite a confusing phrase and it's perfectly good from the point of view of those of us who are close to these subjects but actually there was a survey done a few years years ago that went into the street and did a vox pop asking people what they thought biodiversity was and the single biggest answer that came back was that it was a washing powder which of course is is not helpful and so this is where uh, I think it, it's helpful to look at other words uh, and the word that certainly we use at Natural England and the one which I think has more currency and meaning and cuts through more quickly is the idea of nature everybody can identify with nature it's a very populist uh term that we all get from young young children onwards and it's also the name of a scientific journal so it's not a woolly word it, it, it's, it's it's an in, encompassing broad word but it really does capture all the dimensions of this because in the end actually you know it's not only about the biodiversity it's all a, it's also about how different components of the earth system interact with one another so uh the climate interacting with ecosystems in terms of carbon capture and resilience uh it, it, it actually fits more in the idea of healthy nature than it does uh, conserving biodiversity. So I think we are making progress, but the reality is, is that if you look across what's happening uh, in the world today, you know, the, the, the biodiversity crisis is extremely pressing and in some ways I would say is even more urgent than what's happening on the climate. Uh, a mass extinction is unfolding. Um, very likely on a scale that we've not seen on this planet for about 60 million years since the dinosaurs went extinct. And so this is really a profound shift which is underway and one which certainly deserves at least equal billing to the climate emergency. Uh, and therefore getting this up the agenda is, is really important. And the idea of a nature emergency and a climate emergency being two sides of the same coin, I think that is getting through now and people are beginning to see uh, not only that there's two big issues but also that they're fundamentally connected yeah yeah because it's not just an environmental issue is it biodiversity it, it really spills into every part of 
yeah. our you know society really it does do Bi- biodiversity is profoundly important for human well-being the other phrase that i like uh, when talking about biodiversity is to say well actually it's the web of life thereby not only um making uh, the point about the individual components of it but also the strands of connections and the fact that all these different bits of, of nature are joined up in different ways mm-hmm. and the relationships between different elements of that web of life is what sustains human society and so you know the relationship between pollinators and plants for example insect pollinators for instance 70% of, of the world's crop plant varieties depend upon pollinating insects mm-hmm. uh, and a few on birds and, and, and mammals. And that is, of course, you know, then in turn linked with food security. And then when it comes to water, you know, the, the, the way in which wetlands help to replenish aquifers often is underappreciated. And the extent to which trees pump moisture back into the atmosphere to therefore drive rainfall patterns. You know, the Amazon rainforest is putting into the atmosphere uh, in the order of 25 billion tonnes of water every day as evaporated moisture. And that is forming clouds and those clouds are travelling and that in turn is contributing to food security uh, as far away as North America and South Africa because that water is being pumped right into the high atmosphere and, it, and it's moving. And, and so once you start to see those connections and realise the consequences of, of what we're doing to that web of life, you see that it isn't an environmental issue solely. It's an economic issue, it's a food security issue, it's a water security issue it's even an energy security issue you would have noticed in china uh, this year some of their hydroelectric dams have been unable to run because of low river flow in turn linked to environmental degradation not only climate change but also deforestation same thing going on in brazil and then of course you come uh, to the more personal dimensions of this and i think we all saw during those lockdowns the incredible beneficial ef- effects of being able to access high quality natural areas Uh, very um, strong evidence we have about the positive benefits for psychological and physical well-being that comes with access to nature so there's multiple levels to this and if you start to add them all up you find that actually those contributions from nature are far bigger uh, in terms of their importance in terms of the value being created than global GDP it's a bigger contribution than GDP and yet we still dwell in this kind of misapprehension whereby we say we have to sacrifice the nature to grow the GDP it's completely the opposite Mm. if we don't look after the nature the GDP will suffer uh, in, in pretty fundamental ways how far do you feel that government understands this? It, it varies. I, I think, you know, it's kind of put into the environment box by some uh, figures and therefore is seen as something which is kind of separate in a silo, which is different to social progress and different to economic development and job creation. This is not true and it's still evidently the case that there are a range of views on this. Some really get it. Others, I'm afraid, um, there's, there's still some way to go. anything that we can do as an industry to, to keep pushing it up the agenda and kind of getting them to understand? Well, I, I, I think one of, one of the really hopeful things um, that you find a, a, across the wider population, never mind the experts, is people's love of, of plants and animals. You know, the number of pets we keep in this country and the fact of us going uh, to such great lengths to keep our gardens beautiful. I think there's really something to work with there in terms of this natural affinity that people have for living things. And so those uh, organisations working in the horticulture sector, I think, can do an enormous amount, um, you know, raising awareness about how to really build back uh, 
natural diversity in, into gardened landscapes, whether it's a small garden or a big one or a park. Um, lots still, um, I think, there in terms of potential to really connect people with some of these questions simply through raising awareness. My wife the other day was at the um, garden centre buying some plants and thought there could have been more information there about what will be good for pollinators, what will be good for native birds, what will be good in terms of, of creating structural diversity in a garden to create cover, for example. And it's kind of individual plants being sold rather than painting that picture of what the plants could do together. And I think, you know, the, 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 the horticulture sector, I think there's really an opportunity there mm. to engage with more and more people who really are thinking about this stuff. What can I do in my garden to bring the insects back, to bring the birds back, to improve the biodiversity? Uh, and that's, um, I, I, I think, a, a canvas which is willing to be painted for, for many people who, who think about their gardens and who love their gardens. Yeah, absolutely. And what are your opinions on some of the um, sort of bigger issues that have kind of hit the headlines and kind of maybe more at the forefront of people's minds, like peat-free, for example, or even artificial grass? Yeah, well, um, yeah, the artificial grass, I'm, I'm, I'm slightly baffled by that one. Mm. I can see that in some cases, you know, you might want to put a little bit down a place of high footfall where the kids or dogs running in and out. Yeah. But the idea of, of putting entire gardens down to it, I, I, I think there's... there's um, yeah, there's something to be uh, done there to encourage people to think more about the benefits of natural grass. Uh, on the peat side, we, we have made significant progress on that lately. Mm -hmm. So I was personally involved with, with campaigns on peatlands uh, during the early 1990s whilst working at Friends of the Earth. I was, I was the lead on biodiversity there and we had a lot of effort going into making the case for, for peat-free alternatives because yeah. of this damage being done to um, wetland ecosystems for peat extraction and a couple of weeks ago, we finally got to the point where the government has now said there will be a phase out uh, in the horticultural sector by uh, 2024, although this is not applying yet to the commercial side, yes. it's more the consumer side, but this is progress and that will follow. Um, but I think, you know, the market signal that, that has now gone there, actually, it's really quite astonishing. Our local garden centre this weekend uh, massive piles of peat-free compost for sale whereas before you had to really hunt for it yeah. so i think that signal it's kind of landed loud yeah. and clear straight away really quite recently as well yeah. i found exactly yeah. yeah exactly and this is despite all the commitments literally back in the 90s you know uh, some of the prominent figures in the industry saying we're going to phase this out and you know it was left to the consumer largely and as a result of that you know people get confused there's different labeling and some of it's called organic and it's still got peat in it and so on and so forth so i think it did need, need a clear signal from government to say look you know the damage being caused by this activity really now we need to move uh, to a new place and mm -hmm. you know if we're investing in peatland recovery which we are here now and natural england's leading a grant scheme for government to be able to help people who are doing peatland recovery it seems a bit kind of contradictory at the same time to still be digging them out in, in order for the horticulture to, to have that material and you know happily now we're in a space where the alternatives have been researched more thoroughly and we've got stronger supply chains and uh, actually what this will probably do what it certainly will do is this will start stimulating demand for non-peat alternatives of course and thereby bring um you know business opportunity to to other sectors and i i would imagine many of the peak companies are looking at that themselves and so it's not as if they're going to go out of business necessarily it's going to be about different business more sustainable uh, literally into the long term yeah where do you think that drivers really come from because like we said it has come quite more prominently over the last few years is it crucial to get the public 
on board and something they can kind of get behind. Yeah. Well, I, th I think the government did recognise uh, that, you know, the public had moved a very long way and it was really yeah. very welcome to see in the government's manifesto in 2019, you know, the commitment to put in motion the world's uh, most ambitious environmental programme. That's what they said they would do. And they have followed through since 2019. We've had a whole raft of policies, targets being set, a focus on the carbon and nature interactions, uh, the new environmental land management scheme, uh, the uh, new mechanism of biodiversity net gain. You know, all of these things have been moved forward over the last few years. And I, I think that does demonstrate the extent to which the science, the public opinion and the policy making has lined up much more strongly than it did before. But it took a while. You know, we can never take for granted that these things will necessarily remain uh, as, as high profile as they were. It tends to go in cycles. You get a high period of environmental awareness and then other things grab the attention. Now it's, of course, the cost of living crisis and what's going on in Ukraine. Uh, but this is, uh, of course, uh, not diminishing for a nanosecond the importance of the environmental issues. Climate change remains a massive threat, not only to the natural world, but to human security and, you know, our food and water securities we've seen in this country this year. And that unravelling of the web of life with all of those benefits that will be lost, that remains undiminished in its importance despite these other things coming along. And so I think it is more important than ever that we retain that very strong and clear understanding of what the science is telling us. This is not a matter of opinion. The science is telling us that if we look after nature, then that's the best way of looking after the uh, interests of people. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of some of those things that government have done over the years, the levelling up fund has obviously come out, I think phase two came out quite recently. Does it go far enough? Do you think that it's going to be successful? Is there anything else you think kind of needs to be added to it? What are your thoughts? So this is part of the challenge with, with, with um, how things are organised at multiple levels, not just government, but in industry and even in the, in the conservation sector, you know, things being looked at in silos. And, and so I think, you know, for quite a lot of people, you know, levelling up job creation, bringing economic prosperity to uh, those parts of the country that need it most, it's sometimes looked at as a different thing to restoring the natural world. When in fact, actually, these, these two things, you know, need to go hand in hand. Uh, we're sitting in Cambridge at the moment, actually, and a uh, very interesting conversation I had last last month with some business leaders here mm. um, who you'd think would be, you know, not necessarily the first people to be stepping up and saying, what can we do to recover the natural environment around Cambridge? And having a conversation with them was really revealing because what they have concluded is that if we don't have a healthy natural environment in a prosperous part of the country like Cambridge, then over time it will become less prosperous because the talented people who are coming here will move away. It's a simple piece of logic. They've put two and two together and they've concluded that in order to attract investment, attract the top people, and more importantly to keep the investment and the top people here, you have to invest in a healthy environment for them to enjoy. And that was, for me, that was a really interesting 
logic that had been pulled together by business leaders, not, yeah. not some policy people or, or some charitable people. These are people who are running businesses for profit who know that if they wish to continue doing that and indeed improve that process, they have to improve the environment. And so we're speaking to them at Natural England. There's a partnership of, of local organisations getting together. And this is where it is about busting silos. Mm. Uh, and so if you want to do levelling up and you want to do economic prosperity, putting it hand in hand with the nature dimension is absolutely critical rather than having it as an afterthought so you know designing um uh new housing developments with the ecologists around the table yeah. at the beginning rather than coming in at the end how can you make these places beautiful and livable so that people want to move there and have children rather than just generating as many new dwellings as possible you know in terms of thousands of homes so moving into that space i think is critical in terms of how we approach the leveling up dimensions of all of this and you know different mechanisms to do it um, i think one one thing that is going to be pretty crucial is linking in any planning reforms into the nature recovery agenda because if you're on the one side planning to restore nature and then through a different process planning to build houses in the same place you know it doesn't necessarily add up to a yeah. very kind of efficient way uh, of achieving the outcomes that we're all after so <laughs> i think my, my my kind of overview answer to, to that one rachel is to say you know <clears throat> if leveling up is going to be successful and if the environmental program is going to be successful these two things are mutually interdependent that yeah. they're not separate things and so conceiving the ways in which we can join up those dots i i think is really what we have to do and as i say you know, there are people who are thinking that and actually doing it like they are around cambridge yeah which is so fantastic to hear yeah. and i think i mean i've even seen it in the few years that i've been in the industry architect kind of used to be architects then maybe landscape architecture was a bit of an afterthought and they're yeah. maybe creeping up um, yeah. a bit and coming into discussions earlier, yeah. which is exactly. really positive to see. So hopefully that will just exactly keep extending. Exactly. Yeah. Imagine the outcomes we could get if you had the engineers, the town planners, the architects mm -hmm. and the ecologists and the landscape architects all working together yeah. on the same plan rather than one group leading the discussion and then the others coming in to complain at the end yeah. that it's not green <laughs> enough, yeah. which is what usually happens. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I was at a symposium last week where they were saying gardeners should even be involved in yes. these conversations. Definitely. You know, they know all about um, maintenance is just as important, isn't it, yeah, as, exactly. as any project. Absolutely, so, exactly. Yeah, yeah, I think that's yeah. a really good point. So with all of this talk, how positive are you about kind of the future of Earth, I suppose, and nature in general? I think like all environmentalists, you know, the, the, there's, there's two ways of reading what's going on. One is to see uh, a disaster impending in terms of rapid global warming and mass extinction, all the consequences that will have for the human world and the natural world. On the other side, you can look and see this incredible raising of awareness that's going on and people coming together to look for solutions and either scenario looks plausible going forward are we going to have an ecological uh, collapse or are we going to have an ecological industrial revolution you could call it mm. uh, and moving into a phase of human development which would which would amount to a sustainability revolution zero carbon electricity and transport and heating uh, the restoration of the natural environment at scale sustainable agriculture a circular economy uh, the truth is we, we we have pretty much everything we need to do that but what yeah. we're now going to need is the leadership and the partnerships to be able to bring it to effect and 
I have to get up in the morning and uh, be an optimist. And I, I, I think most environmentalists uh, who think about this for, for very long, I think you conclude that if you're not an optimist, we're possibly going to squander the last chance we've got. Yeah. And so I think we have to be positive. We have to foster cooperation and we have to inspire people to want to do things differently. And, uh, you know, raising that sense of urgency as we do that is absolutely essential. But I think we have to paint a picture which is about possibility rather than catastrophe. Yeah, absolutely. And I think sometimes it can feel like such a big macro issue, but every little really does help. If there's someone listening here who's not sure what they can do, they feel like, you know, they're just designing domestic gardens, for example. What could maybe one bit of advice you could give them as to what they can do? Think think about that nature recovery network idea I talked about. Mm -hmm. And remember that building that network, it's going to be made of little building blocks, some of them bigger than others, uh, but the smallest garden in the middle of a city can be a building block in that nature recovery network. What can you do to help people uh, make the most of those little spaces, a pond, uh, a native shrub or two, uh, something for pollinating insects to eat, connectivity for mammals like hedgehogs? Can these things be blended into beautiful gardens? I I think they can in, in nearly every case. My last question for you is a bit more of a fun one. Um, what plant would you take to a desert island um, if you were stranded there? Well, um, there's about 300,000 higher plants, aren't there? Flowering plants and sitting in the Cambridge Botanical Gardens, what they've tried to do here is to set out all the different families in different beds and you can walk around and see the evolution of plant life. Um, I think what I would do, actually, for my plant that I'd take with me, I'd go back to the beginning of the evolution of plants on land and go for something quite simple but which has a profound effect on the whole system, and that's sphagnum moss. Um, uh, Now, sphagnum, well, it's a whole genus. There's many, many species. Uh, But what we know they do, of course, is this incredible job, not only of creating a, a wonderful, unique habitat, in which other uh, wildlife lives, but they've got such a profound uh, role in the water and carbon cycles. And so if, 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 if they're, you think of beavers as being ecosystem engineers in how they catch yeah. carbon and reduce flood risk, if there's a plant equivalent, then maybe it's the sphagnum moss. Um, ah. But I'd need to go to a wet desert island. Yes. I'm not sure if that <laughs> would be. I'd have to pick maybe one of the Western Isles yes. uh, where no one lives and uh, have it smothered in sphagnum. Well, a huge thank you again. I think I could probably ask you questions all day long, but I won't keep you any longer. I'm Rachel Forsyth, and this has been the Horticulture Week podcast. Make sure you never miss one. Subscribe or follow Horticulture Week podcast via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your preferred podcast platform. If you are interested in producing a podcast with Horticulture Week, email us at hortweek at haymarket.com. Huge thank you again, Tony, and goodbye for now. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. 
And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.